The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to This Is Working. I'm Dan Roth, the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And today we're talking to the co-founder and CEO of a company that has helped me, and I'm guessing helped most of you, get through this pandemic. My guest today is Reed Hastings. Reed launched Netflix as the world's first online DVD rental store. Over 20 years later, DVDs are rare, streaming is everywhere, and content is king. Netflix has been a leader in every part of that evolution. It's transformed itself three times in just over 20 years. Now, 180 million of us in over 190 countries look to Netflix for much of our entertainment. Reed has a new book out called No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. It's worth turning off your TV and spending time with. I started our chat by asking him to describe one of the connect the dots moments he mentions in the book, when he first realized Netflix's culture was driving its success. Here's our conversation. We always thought culture was important, but I think it wasn't until we did the global expansion, we had been all domestic through 2010, uh, and the original content expansion, and both went well. And we realized that's not normal. And really the underlying thing was this culture of freedom, which got people, employees, to be their own individual thinkers. Um, and they were unconstrained. And that, that freedom of an inspired group of employees could then figure out challenges that many other firms had struggled with, such as getting into original content. But there were two times in Netflix history where it was questionable about whether you guys were going to make it. I mean, there were times when Blockbuster was going to absolutely destroy Netflix. You had layoffs. There was another time when you when you moved into streaming and you didn't have original programming. And there was a question about whether people were going to continue to license you programming. At, at any point, was there a question about whether that sort of freedom that you were giving your employees was enough to help you uh, uh, find the right path to be able to make it through those challenging times? And wasn't there a point where you were like, I'm going to tell people top down what we need to do to be able to make it to the next level? Um, you know, there are uh, big moments uh, where I do lean in very specifically on things. Uh, fortunately, as the organization gets stronger, it's rarer and rarer. But in the early days, 20 years ago, um, when we were trying to just survive post of the original internet bubble crash. Um, you know, I was heavily involved in specking individual product features, marketing campaigns. I was your typical hands-on person along with lots of other people. And then, you know, it's only as we grew that we were able to understand enough about, you know, developing people and to make that work uh, that by maybe... 2008, probably seven or eight years later, um, 10 years after founding, that we really hit our stride. Let's talk a little bit about the book. And I would love for you to think to talk about how applicable this is to other companies. There's people who are watching this uh, and joining this, this discussion from around the world. They are going to be watching this thing. It's great. Netflix, uh, Reed here has laid out a whole uh, uh, understanding of what, what makes Netflix Netflix, but can I apply any of that to my company and my own professional life? Let's start with the hiring and firing practices of Netflix. I think one of the most one of the things that really set you apart is that you are a big believer in moving people out very quickly and that giving big severances 
is a much better, is, is more humane and uh, more cost effective than putting them on performance improvement plans and kind of nurturing people back and seeing whether they can make it. W would you explain that philosophy and then talk about uh, the how you came to, to realize that this was the right way to manage your people? You know, I think the book will be useful for all kinds of organizations. Uh, for small organizations, it's thinking through for themselves as they're forming their culture. What parts are, do we like about the Netflix culture we'll borrow? What parts do we not like and we're going to improve upon? And then for larger companies, they tend to use it as a discussion element. So they'll have a lot of executives read the book. And then, you know, we're not going to, that company's not going to adopt what we do. But through discussion about our choices, uh, it refines their own culture. So it, you can use it and people will in, in both ways. In terms of talent density, what we've realized is that if you have 10 of the most amazing people, you can get more done than if you have 20 average people. And so that fundamental view, which lots of people have had, um, has become our animating insight, is that it's really about talent density. Then the question is, how do you pull that off and still be a great place to work? And the answer is the combination of the generous severance packages. So typically four to six months for entry level people. So really quite generous. Um, and then second, we never do it quickly. You, you talked about moving people on quickly. It's always uh, very thoughtfully after a lot of discussion. But we basically ask managers, there's no quotas or anything like that. Basically ask managers to think about, you know, would they rehire the person? Uh, would they keep them if uh, that person was thinking of going to another company? And if they say yes, then great. <clears throat> that person is a keeper. And if not, then we give that person a generous severance package and try to find uh, someone who, you know, will be a rock star in that role. So and that goes along with really the paradigm shift. So many companies say, oh, we're a family family, 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 and historically, most organizations were family organizations. And we say we're a team. We're like a professional sports team. We want to win the championship. And if you're going to win the championship, you have to have incredible players at every position on the team. Concepts and models of a professional sports team, including the high compensation, rather than the family, which is really about undying support, you know, no matter what your brother does, you stick with them. And, and really, that's just not an effective metaphor for us. In a culture like that, how do you make sure that people aren't always then thinking about what it is that is going to enable them to stay around? Or there, there's a, an example in the book of someone who doesn't unpack his box for a year because he is so sure that he is going to not pass the keeper test, how do you train people not to constantly be worried about that question about whether they will, at some point, the manager come to them and say, this just isn't working out? Well, think of a competitive athlete and, you know, on a team sport, and they could get injured at any game. And then there could be, in worst case, the whole rest of their career is gone. And yet athletes do not focus on that fear. No, they play light, they play strong, and they've got the mental discipline. Same thing with our employees. Sure, they know that, you know, someday they may, you know, get a severance package. But the ones who love it, which is most of us, we just love having incredible teammates. And we play hard and light and joyful. And that really drives the success. In a world like yours where you have uh, made sure that you have 
professional, superstar professional athletes, essentially, uh, working at the company. You feel like you've got this really uh, great set of, of people who are all at the top of their game. One of the challenges I think a lot of companies run into is that you have people who are all convinced that they are doing the right thing and they're all superstars, but they have to work together. And so someone's great plan and you've given everyone freedom and responsibility. How do you handle the inevitable conflicts that are going to come up between uh, A players who are all have their own vision of what they need to be able to pull off, but those visions conflict with each other? When we talk about performance, we talk about it as both talent and teamwork. And teamwork is a critical skill. Uh, most people want to be a team player, but only some people really have developed the skill of the blind pass kind of sensing what should happen, even if you can't see it directly. And the corporate equivalent would be, you know, letting certain people know what's happening proactively because you think they're going, it's going to affect them and they're going to have an opinion. And, you know, having a great sixth sense about the organization is very helpful. So think of that as the skill of teamwork, which is very much what we select for in addition to the personal skill. It, which is no different than, you know, team professional sports. What advice do you give to a budding entrepreneur? You've started two companies. Uh, you look back, what would you tell yourself when you were starting a company knowing what you know now? Well, I've started a lot more than two, but only two succeeded. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, first and obvious advice to an entrepreneur is be ready to fail. But um, again, I would say the entrepreneurial mindset is non-rational. And you have to be willing to jump out of an airplane without a parachute because you just assume a bird is going to fly by and you're going to catch it. Um, and so when I look in hindsight at, you know, the commercial risks that we've taken in the early days, it's crazy. And yet occasionally that works out. So um, I would say, you know, starting things, it's you do it because you can't not do it. Um, it's just driving you uh, as opposed to it's a rational activity. Um, because I, I think given the level of risks the, and the level of luck that has to come along, the equivalent of the bird flying by as you're uh, falling uh, is phenomenal. What do you do if you're an entrepreneur and you just can't hire the best? You've got to have other people who are willing to take this leap of faith with you. And you also probably can't pay the uh, top of market rates that other people can pay. So Entrepreneur starting off, great idea, but can't necessarily get that talent density. What do you do? Yeah, those are tough situations. You got to make do with what you can um, and uh, see what you can do and just be scrappy. Um, it wasn't really until we were a public, uh, a public company that we really started with a high compensation. Before that, um, you know, it was uh, a wish. You are uh, creating entertainment in a pandemic era where people can't actually get together. Uh, what's how is that having an impact on your original programming? And when at what point do you think that we will be able to get back to starting to create some of this uh, um, content together? Are you expecting to see a drop off in new subscribers once people can actually start having physical and real world activities again? So we're back to producing um, in most places of the world. In the U.S., it's limited. Uh, we're doing a lot of testing, and we're building up capacity to be able to do more. But in Canada, where fortunately there's very little COVID, um, we've got a number of productions going. And then throughout Europe and Asia, the same thing. Um, so it, it does vary by country. Um, in terms of uh, subscribers, we've had tremendous growth over the first half of this year, growing from you know, roughly 170 to 195 million. 
um, you know, we'll see what the rest of the year brings. Um, but in the long term, think about it as there's a lot of people on the Internet who like entertainment and we're serving a small fraction of them. So we try to focus on the big picture, which is, you know, we want everyone on the Internet to have a chance to have Netflix uh, like they do YouTube. Frankly, YouTube is um, the one that's you know quite far ahead of us, both in reach and in total hours. They get about seven times more viewing uh, than Netflix does. So we got a, a long way to go. So is that going to push you into user-generated content? No, I don't think the way to compete with another company is to do what they do, because you're not going to do it better. Um, so no, we have to have amazing content that you know is just grabs you and people everyone's talking about, and that gets you know the next hundred million people to join. Yeah, I mean, but you you are directly competing with other companies to be able to produce that kind of content and to make sure that you are having people join you to be able to see, you know, to fall in love with, with these shows is the same thing that Disney's trying to do and, and others are trying to do too. Are there other areas besides, you know, user-generated content might not be the right road. Are there other places where you say, maybe we will go podcasts, news, sports, are those areas that you'd want to go into or, or are all of those off the table? You know, our core focus is series and films and doing them on a global basis, whether that's The Crown out of the UK, Dark out of Germany, Naked Director out of Japan, um, and lots of shows out of Hollywood. So, you know, we're just continuing to do what we do, and we're trying to do it at greater scale and greater quality every year. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of, you know, very focused uh, formulas worked really well for our growth over the past 10 years. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. For a while, you were an outsider in Hollywood, and then you started becoming a, a kind of a leader and driving force in the entertainment world. You, you moved internationally. As you enter these other cultures and you start bringing in people who have worked outside the technology industry and either have worked in the entertainment world or maybe in the entertainment world in India or other, other places and start joining Netflix, does your culture change to accommodate these other cultures or do people go through a process of becoming Netflixified? It's a little of both. We've continued to improve the culture uh, year by year. Um, and some of that is the influence from our international colleagues. Some of it's the influence from creative industries. Um, and we try to make it better and better. And then also we do a bunch of new people like here's the culture. This is what we think. This is how to succeed. And um, one of the best things that companies can do is to write down um, their culture. An example is the online Netflix culture memo. So it's really writing out, you know, over uh, five or 15 pages, 
you know, what kind of behaviors are most valued. And it's a great exercise for teams to do. And I'm not sure there's a superior, you know, culture over another, but it really helps to have whatever culture you have to have everyone at the company understand it. Do you think 2020 will accelerate a push towards the decentralization of the entertainment industry? Will there be a power shift from Hollywood to regional studios, independent producers, et cetera? Are you seeing that? I mean, we're definitely more global than our peer group. Um, and they've been somewhat global, but we produce a lot more in Europe um, you know, than Warner Media or even than Disney. Are there places where as Netflix becomes more global that you are discovering that there is incredible content and content producers that you think that all of us should be paying more attention to? Korea, Japan, uh, India, Denmark, France, Germany, UK, Spain, Italy, I mean, you know, Brazil. Uh, yeah, I mean, every major market has um, highly developed storytelling traditions. And so um, there's just a great amount of content. So, you know, we had a Recent hit, India Matchmaking, you know, very uh, cute and wonderful show about, you know, Seema, the Auntie Seema, the amazing matchmaker. And, you know, it's filmed in a combination of Mumbai and the U.S. Uh, with her clients spread across those. And so it's a fascinating cross-cultural journey. What kind of diversity initiatives are being developed for Black storytellers? How do you think about what, both as a, as a leader of Netflix, the company, and as someone who is thinking, who is putting programming in front of the world, what kind of responsibility does Netflix have to be able to uh, to bring more diversity to your business and to the entertainment world? You know, there's some fields like Silicon Valley software where black Americans are underrepresented. But in entertainment, there's been a long tradition of success. Uh, and we've got a wide variety of uh, black content and stronger instructors. There's some studies coming out showing basically how strong Netflix is in, in all those dimensions. Um, so in terms of entertainment, we've just really followed what's great storytelling. Uh, and like Ava, Ava DuVernay did some great stories for us uh, with 13th, um, a documentary about mass incarceration, uh, When They See Us. Um, Kenya Barris just did a series, Black AF, that's incredibly funny. Um, and then we've got, you know, great family entertainment like Raising Dion, young black kid who's got a superpower and learning how to use it. And so think of our programming as super diverse, multiple dimensions. And that's been a long term focus, not uh, of just this year. And I think this year in reaction really to uh, Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd, um, we've really tried to figure out what can we do about um, black wealth creation. You know, the average black family in America makes about one tenth um, or has about one tenth the assets of a white family. And a lot of that is investment. And so Netflix uh, set aside $100 million uh, to deposit in black banks. Um, and then they have that money to loan out in their community uh, to start the economic flywheel. So if lots of companies, especially major companies, um, can take one or 2% of their deposits and put them in black banks, um, that will make a, a real difference uh, in, again, closing the economic uh, and wealth gap. Well, I think after the George Floyd killing, you heard a lot of uh, leaders starting to talk, just saying that, they, that things need to change, but not necessarily explaining how they were going to change it. Your um, efforts to uh, back black banks was a really interesting one. I would love to just understand how you decided that that was where Netflix could make a difference. What, was, what, what led you down that path? 
Well, I think we're, you know, focused on, um, you know, what's the economic impacts. Um, there's other people really working on the social impacts, like through our content. Um, but uh, the undercapitalization of black banks um, has been a persistent theme, and it's something that we knew we could do. And if lots of other companies all put one or two percent, um, you know, of their cash in black banks, we realized that would make a real difference, and we could. Uh, try it and set the example and uh, move forward on that basis. Are you seeing, uh, ha have you started doing it yet? And are you seeing it make a difference? Are you hearing anything back? It's making a difference in terms of other companies are exploring yeah. it. Costco just committed a um, huge amount of money. So thank you, Costco. Um, and so, you know, one by one, we're hoping that companies will, will do something about black banking. And, you know, it's not going to like solve racism. You know, it's not, uh, you know, a huge single silver bullet, but you know it's a tangible, practical step that corporations can do uh, to get more investment, and more capital in the black community. Going back to the book, you walk through how the Netflix culture is uh, makes a difference and uh, how people are guided. In the past, you've talked a lot more about being a data-driven company and about making data-driven decisions. It doesn't come up very often in the book of how you use data to make these decisions. It's more about the people who make the decisions. Why didn't you go into the data in the book, or can you talk a little bit about how the data influences your culture also? Well, I would say we use data where it's useful, and where it's not, we use judgment. So internally, I say, look, when you're picking stocks, data is a really good thing. And when you're picking a spouse, you probably want to use judgment. And so there's just different domains. So um, with uh, the service, we do a lot of testing like most internet companies and it's very data-driven. We have lots of data on the performance of various shows, but it's not very, data doesn't really help us in terms of choosing employees or choosing which scripts we're going to produce. That's really human judgment and then we lean into people who have great judgment. What do you think the next big thing will be in, in, in the digital streaming game? And I think a lot of people are asking this question about whether you move into gaming. Is that going to be something big or is there something that, that, that is coming next? You're already saying this is where we, we have to be next when it comes to streaming. You know, we are now doing um, interactive programming uh, where uh, you can you know, direct the story. Uh, Snaps was our first and biggest one of that type. And so we're experimenting there. Uh, but most of what we're doing is just trying to figure out how do we tell the world's best stories, um, the most gripping, the most talked about, the most heartfelt um, both in film and series on a global basis. And th that's going to consume us for many years. If there is any takeaway from this book, if you, you know, someone is is uh, running a small business, they're reading this, they just want to say, look, there are two things that I need to know to be able to make my business more successful. Uh, what, what would you tell them? That factories have dominated our thinking because they've generated so much wealth over two or 300 years. And most of us are too influenced by the factory model of the top-down management. The worker follows the rules. And if you're in a creative business, it's much more about new ideas. So it's fine to have a lot more freedom, tolerate some small mistakes, manage really on the edge of chaos. Don't seek efficiency. Seek flexibility and innovation. And if you organize yourself around innovation, you too will develop new practices like some of the ones that we've done at Netflix. But at the highest level, it's about inspiring people instead of supervising them. 
That was Netflix's co-CEO, Reed Hastings. In talking with Reed and in reading his book, my mouth dropped open at the way that he talks about how you manage top performers. He's got this super simple question in response of, would you fight to keep this person if they had an offer? And if not, you should let him go, give him a severance and find someone else. That's just a totally different way to manage people than most of corporate America uh, follows today. I love the concept, but I wonder if it'll work outside the halls of Netflix. Should all companies run like professional sports teams? I would love to hear your thoughts about this or whatever else grabbed you about the Reed interview over on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. I'll post an article about this interview on my profile, and you can comment there as well. As always, to get more news and insights, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find the show. This is Working is a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer with help from Michaela Greer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. I'll see you next week.